Anyone agree? Everyone agree with that? There once was a man named. Oh. Paul. There once was a man named Paul. Paul? Have you ever known anyone named Paul? <laughs> All right, there once was a man named Paul, uh, or Paul. We'll, we'll put that, and you guys think it's Ferd. Okay, and this is Paul, you think. Okay, is everyone agree with that, the first sentence? Well, I have with us some fragments that were salvaged from last week. So let's see if we can put this together today, okay, with our fragments we have. Um, this looks like a very old fragment. It is um, in cursive. This is a fragment of cursive writing, which tells you what generation, how young or old is it minimally. At, at the earliest, it's the third generation, because it could be these other ones. I didn't tell them they couldn't do it in cursive, but we know these people did do it in cursive. And it could be older because some of these people could have copied it. All right, so um, let's see here. Let's just, uh, can you read cursive? No. Okay, yeah, I thought you were too young for that. Okay. And I also have this little fragment um, that, that um, actually has the names Paul and Ferd and Dead all on the same fragment of this. And so here, Valor, I'll give this to you. That's a fragment. Um, that's out of the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. And then I have this very large fragment. And it is also in cursive. Okay? And so with a very significant start to everything. It's like the whole top part. Okay? And so um, let's see. I'll pass this down here. You can read cursive a little bit. You can read it. You just, it's kind of like people who can understand Spanish but can't speak it. All right. So, based upon our fragments, let's see what we can put together. And your memory. That's the three things we, two things we have available. Your memory is double. Um, that's the two things we have. The fragments and your memory. Uh, memory is things that you've been exposed to over tradition. So, what do we have here? There was once a man named Paul. I left out A. By the way, I did tabulate all of your copies there are lots of interesting little errors from the very first generation. Um, just a dropped letter here and there. And it's interesting that all the dropped letters and misspellings were corrected the very next copy. None of those persisted. Um, there was a question, a great question, and that one caused some problem. What's next on our What's the next sentence? There was once a man named Paul. Is that the end of the sentence? See, now there's the problem. No and yes. That is the end. That's not the end. Um, And we had a dilemma, didn't we? We had a phrase that was dropped. And it's interesting. I tabulated all of your things. And exactly 50% of you had a clause after this. And 50% of you did not. Okay, and the clause was, who, what? Who was, who was mighty in word and deed? But that's not really how it was, was it? It had a line through it. And the line through it was meant not to just throw you off. The line through it was meant to represent something. And that is that we don't, can't always understand or assume that we know what prior generations, particularly hundreds of years ago, might have done to either try to say this was a mistake or this is to be emphasized. Or, uh, for example... In writings today, we have a requirement, um, the newspaper does at least, used to, that if they change anything from the original, they're supposed to put it in parenthesis, right? And so if you, if you write a letter to the editor and they change something, they have to put that in parenthesis if they shorten or abbreviate what you said, 
or if they leave out something that they use dot, 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 some way of showing that they have manipulated the text a little bit. And uh, that's true of a lot of, every generation of writing has that to some degree or another. And now you're faced with, well, do I add what's in the parenthesis? Or do I not include it? Or do I include it with a footnote? Um, as Pastor Leachman did, he put a footnote, who was mighty in word and deed. Um, and, or is it emphatic? And so we don't know. We can look at that and say, well, that should be crossed off. And half of you, either because you inherited some, a copy from someone who had determined that that was a mistake, that was... This was an attempt to cross it off, not to emphasize it. Dropped it. And that happens. If it's in a parenthesis, someone says, well, or it doesn't fit. And even in your quotes in your college papers and such, sometimes you do that. You just drop a section of the quote that doesn't apply to you. You're supposed to put some dot, 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 so that we know that the sentence goes on. But the fact is, people don't. And many, many quotes become... Uh, sometimes even twisted a little bit from their intention by us doing that because they didn't fit it on the little panel and the little picture on Facebook that we wanted to put the quote onto. And so it becomes abbreviated. And we lose, of course, the context too. So that was this purpose. And interestingly, this section right here, from here to here, is exactly 50%. Only 50% of our copies had it. Exactly. It was pretty amazing. And by the way, both the first and second generation had it. So it got dropped in here. Now, is yours cursive? So that means that's a third generation copy and it has it intact. So we had quite a few of you drop it in here somewhere apparently. Maybe because this was a timed one and they decided, well, I don't need to copy all that. Um, at whatever it was, but several dropped it in here, um, and so we lost 50% of that. Well, we can go on, and we have quite a bit of the early part of this um, story, um, and that, right? Yeah. Go ahead and read it. I'm not going to write it down, because it takes too long. I don't want to spend that much time on it. Anything else? Don't eh, that little word on that little thing is real important to a lot of people. Go on a. Go on a. All right. Do we have anything else that we could add? Do you have anything that would connect with this story of fur? Who has the other one? Valerie, you have anything? You have a a corner, a drop corner. So you have the middle. Anything that goes with? Nothing that fits with that. Maybe and. It looks like that's. All right, now, this is kind of interesting, because what we have here is these words, a, oops, I got a, madge. Oh, we don't really have the madge, sorry. What we have is the mad, and we have something down there. But it's in cursive, so it's like this. So it could be a G, or it could be what we believe it to be a J, right? So we have that. Now we can tie that into what you said, right? So we just have really three and a half letters. That's all we have is three and a half letters of this line. But we have that whole line on this one. And we can see those three and a half letters line up with, he was a majestic stallion. And so then we can cut and... We uh, can come down here and we can say, find that um, something with Paul. Of course, M-A-J could also mean. It could be an, uh, it could be M-I-G. It could be M-I-G. Just that it's in cursive and they didn't, oh, that might be a G. Anyway, so then we have third. The name Ferd in there. So we have to decide, is this this or is this this? And it's not the easiest thing to do with that cursive writing. And that's part of the problem is if you're not accustomed to reading that writing, you're struggling. Okay? 
Now, if we go on down here, that Paul had the majestic stallion, and we have the whole story of, of them riding together, and we have some information here. We also have some information. What's the information? What other information you have there? One sad day is about where it ends. So something is going on between Paul and Ferd in the story. Um, we and occasional, right? And there's an occasionality, and then we come to the end of the story. What can we piece together? You guys know? Can you remember from memory? Now that we have that little bit of scrap of information. He shared his hopes and dreams. Who shared with who? Paul shared with Fred or Ferd. Paul. Okay. Occasional what? Interruption was the word. With only occasional interruption. Um, and so, uh, most often, um, he, and by the way, we had a spelling error in the first generation of copying. And then it disappeared. It didn't show up again. Um, because most was spelled M-O-S and dropped the T. But everyone else from there on, even though everyone, no, half of you got this, it never showed up again, M-O-S. It was M-O-S-T from there on. It showed up in my generation. Well, you might have had the original. You might have had hers, because it could have easily gotten back to you. But it didn't show up again in any of the other copies. So there's, but there was one spelling error that kept showing up over and over again, and that was the dropping of this e. Var, which isn't really an English word at all, but it kept showing up, especially in the last generation, the fifth generation. It was there a lot. William, Theodore. I don't know if it was you guys. I can show you. You could probably tell me. One of them is, I don't know. All right, so you have, you can start piecing together. Now, we left it off that one sad day was where we had, and what happened one sad day? Do you remember? He stepped in a hole and broke his leg. Some of you wrote broken his leg, but that did not get carried on. There was like one time. And so, we know grammar, and we know spelling, and we, and, and by the way, I put a spelling error in the original, and it got corrected, okay? And so, um, the idea that somehow these errors creep in and just get automatically transferred on is just not the case. Most of us are going to correct those um, just out of, without even thinking about it. Okay, and what happened one sad day? He broke his leg. What what happened? We got a little fragment here. Stepped in. To Enford something. And Erd was dead. So what did he? What did he end? He end his misery, his life, whatever. Ferd ends up dead. We could kind of guess that. And uh, and then what's the last portion you have there? Somebody or someone knew the best was done. But from our memory, we can remember that the whole community knew that the best was done. So we can piece together this. Um, now, that's still not as good as one of these. But we did a pretty. We could probably do a pretty good job, especially if it was really important to us to piece that together out of fragments. And so this is how fragment work. And that's why when I say the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were fragments, most overwhelmingly, um, we think, well, how can two or three letters? How can just a few letters help us? Well, that's how it is because we take it to other texts that we have to later copies that we have, and we say, well, where would this fit in? 
and we can kind of piece these things in a little bit. Now, um, let's just take a look at some other um, things that uh, came up. We had a spelling error in first generation. That was all I saw. It was corrected immediately in the second generation. It was never repeated. And so if you saw that, uh, most uh, being most, uh, and you didn't recopy it, technically you didn't do your job. But all of you recopied it most. I think so. Oh, we lost yours, so I don't know where that generation is. Uh, we have some lost documents. We don't have those little generations, I don't think. Oh, wait, you were in, were you in cursive? Okay, let's talk about the cursive here for a second. Uh-huh. I'm looking at the cursives now. Um, how many cursives should have there been? You're right, you did copy it. I missed it. You copied off the most, so we had two. How many... Cursive should have we had? The third generation was instructed to do it in cursive, and they all did. None of these people were told they could choose whatever they did, and none of them chose to do it in cursive. Um, And the original wasn't in cursive, so let's just say that that was a form of writing introduced in this generation. But how many people were in that third generation? Do you remember? How many copyists? There were three copyists, not four, because we had one special document that was lost. It was cataloged and not recopied. Okay? And we're going to talk about that in a week or two. And so there was three who received three copies. And so they made three copies. And so how many should have we had at the end in cursive? At least three. But if we were true copyists, how many should we have had percentage-wise? If we were little mimeograph machines, instead of people, how many should we have had? It should have been about 50%. Now, some of these came down and were into one, um, so, but it should have been close to 50%. But we didn't have 50%. In fact, total, we only had five. We only had five. That includes these three, which means only two people later on chose to copy in cursive. And that's an important thing um, because that's one of the mechanisms we use to identify the age of a document is the script that it's written in. And so when we say this document is written in Samaritan script, well, that's significant because it wasn't copied by anyone else and it wasn't even copied very long in Samaria that way. And so now we can date it within a period of time that that script was used. And so I can say, well, this is in script. I mean, it's possible it's a forgery and it could have been someone later on copying in it because some people did, Um, two people did in the fourth and fifth generation, but... um, uh, the probability is, even with this very small exercise, the probability is this is a third generation fragment. And we use that all the time in the dating of fragments and of even whole books being written and uh, papyri. Uh, not papyri, but then it would have been scrolls. But uh, we find that these are the mechanisms that we have and you're showing those throughout this. And so when we look at misspellings and we look at grammatical errors um, when you get down to the and by the way there was there was generally a deterioration um, over each generation of quality in terms of the writing okay because there was time a time factor and so those people had to write faster there was also educational level changes. We got to the young people copying. Um, and uh, there was um, yes, and we had some <laughs> instrumental issues with some uh, gloppiness. 
You know, it's just we had two or three of them. They were pretty gloppy and crossing outs, and oh, I copied it wrong, and I scribble it out because this is a pen and not a pencil. And all of that happens, and these scribes are very well trained. But you also had, in the later generations, an opportunity to have more advanced copies because they're comparative. They're bringing in multiples. And so this is the process that is used, and we do this to show you that there is a general dependability upon this process of generational copying. Now remember, this wasn't an important document. I don't, some of you treated it like it was because I told you to, um, but generally speaking, this wasn't a critical document, um, and so you had freedom, really, to copy over errors and to continue them um, by not thinking about what you're writing. Um, and uh, rather than giving careful thought to what this, what, what it, I'm actually writing, some of you were profoundly dismayed later on when you found that, that uh, Paul killed Fred. Um, and you hadn't really noticed because you hadn't been reading what you were copying to know that, why? What do you mean he's dead? What happened? Well, you copied all the words, but it doesn't necessarily mean you were reading there's a big difference there. Um, I can copy a lot of Greek without comprehension. I know the Greek alphabet, and I can copy what I see without necessarily comprehending what it is. And so that's another issue that comes into play as well. So when we look at how God's Word got to us, this has been the question of copying. And rather than looking at it as a suspicious thing, that we have looked at several um, discrepancies between the Masoretic um, Old Testament and the uh, Septuagint uh, in what the Orthodox Church has, um, there's still overwhelmingly a high level of confidence in, in these multi-generational copying, even with all the faults and flaws that are inherent to human error. And... In fact, if we took this whole fifth generation and took all of their documents produced, even by the children, we would have within them this complete story without a single mistake. We could reproduce it perfectly. We would have to know which ones of the group to select from, but if... Um, Pastor Leachman, who put his notation on there, saw the other ones that they all had this crossed out section, except for the one that he got, it would have, he would have seen that, oh, well, this is supposed to be in here, for whatever reason. And so we have a high level of confidence in God's word. I don't want to ever s- sound like this process is um, dubious. Yes, there's human error. Yes, there are perspectives we're going to talk about here in a little bit that can actually introduce some error. Um, But as a general rule, it is very reliable. Now, in terms of preserving a document. Now, uh, when we talk about this, what is required is numbers, right? We need numbers. We need lots and lots of people. Copying, and that gives us greater and greater reliability. Um, I'm not sure, but I'm uh, I'm fairly confident that we could actually have more reliability here than we could even up here. Some of these were passed down, and some from another whole group, and so we have them coming together. Now, if we had access to all of these, we can come up with a very fine document. And that's what we have. Unfortunately, what has happened historically since the schism between the Rome and Constantinople um, was that these two camps never communicated to each other ever again, really, on this level, including all of your Protestant churches and all of your radical churches. 
Okay, and so everyone says, well, there's, there's the Protestants and the Catholics. Well, no, that's only half of Christianity. Christianity was first the East and the West, the Orthodox versus the Catholic, and then the Protestant and Catholic schism. But then you also had, in the midst of all of that, a group called the Radicals, from which we get our Mennonites, our Amish, our Baptists, um, our Waldenses, our Hutterites, all of those people come out of the radicals, or what they were called by everybody, um, and their tradition is, is more European, Western European than Eastern European. And so you have these, and there were divisions on the Eastern side, but they were much less significant, we'll put it like that. Uh, they were kind of like little spin-offs that just kind of lasted a, a little while. And so we have the Arminian Orthodox, we have the Russian Orthodox, but they're all tied to the Orthodoxy very differently than like the uh, Reformation and the Radicals. So we really have four bodies. And three of those bodies, those groups, are tied together, and that's Roman Catholicism, the Reformers, and the Radicals. And the Greek Orthodox have been kind of isolated, and that's their contention, is you never even considered our scriptures. And so we have one-fourth of all of the uh, material not available to us. And if we would include that, we have a richer document at the end. And that's what many are proposing that should have been done many generations ago when we recognize, well, there's still this group of people that we should be incorporating. And certainly in the modern translation movement with all these Bibles, you'd think somewhere along the line, we would have the Septuagint overlaid into our into the Masoretic and give us a complete scriptural understanding. Okay, now I want to take us um, from here. We're going to be looking more into canonicity uh, in the weeks to come. How do we decide what's in the Bible? And I'm going to uh, start this tonight, and we're going to complete it. I think next week because my time is really going by fast. But I want you to just see in this exercise from last week and this week how reliable copying is. Don't think that that is the source of all errors. It's probably the one mechanism to defend against errors simply by multiplicity. Now, recognize also that documents that no one questions. How many of you read Homer's Iliad? Homer's Iliad where we hear about all the Greek heroes, right? We know what all of them did, and we, we see them all in battle. Um, Homer's Iliad. How many ancient documents do we have of Homer's Iliad? Any idea? Yeah, count them on one hand. One hand less. That's pretty puny. But nobody questions it. Nobody challenges it. Um, we just accept it as a, as a worthy historical um, story um, of legend or truth, whichever. Um, uh, and you don't find a whole bunch of textual critics out there. You don't find them trying to undermine its, its authority, its authorship, any of that. Um, and that's just, we just have a handful, less than a handful of copies, uh, comparative to God's Word, where we have thousands of copies made. And within that multiplicity, we have the capacity to then start overlaying all of these and saying, this is identical, 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 identical. Ide- oh, here's not identical. Well, and here's another not identical. But this not identical, different. This one's not identical. Okay, so we can just work it in. But this one, and, and, we, and we have the capacity to do that because of all the copying. And this has become critical when we get to the New Testament understanding the copying is a valuable resource don't see this as oh we should have never been doing this we should have just we should have just tried to preserve the original and that's what many people want to do well we have some very old manuscripts that were preserved interestingly enough and they're going to create some problems with our new testament and we're going to talk about those in a little bit but uh in a couple weeks, week or two. We're going to come back to Ferd is dead or Fred is dead, depending upon what you believe. Um, 
And uh, we're going to revisit that because we're going to find that there might be a substantial problem with your copying in that, although it appears right now that it's very reliable. So um, I have spent some time on two uh, issues and three, really, with Esther um, between the Greek Orthodox or the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and our Bibles. And to introduce canonicity, which canonicity means which books should be in your Bible? Which books belong to what we call the Word of God? And that um, seems like a very established thing, but it really isn't um, because there is already still today disagreement. Correct? Uh, So let me write down a few books of the Bible and... um, We're going to talk about some of them. Song of Songs, Esther, Tobit. Um, no, I'm not going to use Susanna. I think I'm going to use Bell and the Dragon. That's technically the wisdom of Sirach. And then um, I'm going to put in the book of Jeremiah. (laughs) Jeremiah. Something is wrong with my brain tonight. Jeremiah. There we go. I get ahead of myself. All right, so we're going to look at just these books. Um, Do they belong in in your Bible? Um, They're in Catholic Bibles, have uh, Tobit. They have the wisdom of Sirach. the Orthodox do that? Syrach. Syrach. No, oh, there's a lot of other books. Oh, I'm just giving a selection. This is just a, a, just a brief selection of books. All of these have been challenged to one degree or another. Um, and obviously, there are a couple of these aren't in ours, these three particularly, and there's quite a few others. We call them the apocryphal books. And apocryphal simply means good to read. Um, and by that they mean not necessarily authoritative scripture, but good to read. And you have lots and lots of books at your home that you would consider good to read that you don't equal to the Bible. All right? And so that's what apocryphal means. Just a good to read book. Uh, but not necessarily something you need to base all of your faith on. And so, let's just talk about how do you distinguish one from the other. Now, um, out of this list, which, ones, which one do you think that's in, that, that, that we have some of the most discussion about historically, whether it belongs there or not? Or maybe I should just ask you to tell me why some of these are on the list. These are all books that have been debated. I'm going to ask you which one has been hotly debated, perhaps the most over the centuries. But let's just find out why we're debating it. What about Song of Songs? Why would that be debated? It's weird. It's weird. <laughs> what do you mean it's weird? Well, in your Bible, it's called the Song of Solomon. So they have attributed it to Solomon, even though the first person who speaks, it's from a first female's perspective. You've heard me teach that, that it was, probably, it was in all of its statement, they always refer to Solomon as he and I is the bride, and so it's written from her perspective. Um, but uh, in other Bibles, by the way, it's not the Song of Solomon, it's the Song of Songs. Sometimes called the Canticles, but uh, most often the Song of Songs. And so we have its content uh, is questioned. It's racy. We're talking about a love relationship between a man and his bride, his bride-to-be, and it's from her perspective, and if it's from her perspective, what is it full of? Love. Oh. It's mushy, and it's, and it's a guy talking about his girl, and a girl talking about his guy, and it's all about the physical, okay? It's all physical love, it seems like, and so we have, because of the content um, we question whether it really belongs in God's word. And that's gone on, and, and still to some degree, some are very uncomfortable with it. And in fact, a hundred years ago, they refused to even acknowledge that it had any place physically, and it only could be interpreted as a spiritual metaphor. 
And the only way to approach Song of Songs is to see the bride as the church and the groom as Christ. Now, I don't know what it means when the bride is sunburnt, but <laughs> it has some spiritual meaning. And if you read the old guys, they come up with it. They just, I mean, it's, it's wild the things. They, every little thing has got some spiritual meaning behind it. It can't mean what it says. And so that's the problem with the book of Song of Songs. And what's the problem with Esther? May, no, not necessarily. That's not really what we ever believe. It's named for a woman. It's about her. But that, really, that's not our issue either. All right, no mention of God in the Masoretic. What's the other problem content-wise? What does Esther do? What does Mordecai help Esther to do? Yeah, you're going to sleep with a Gentile king along with a whole bunch of other women. It is the immoral aspect of it. And so immoral not only in terms of, of, and by the way, all of these women were added to his harem. They weren't, he didn't just have them overnight and then have them tossed out. They didn't please him. They were all kept and cared for as part of his harem. And if Solomon's allowed a thousand, this guy can have however many. Um, but it's the immorality not only of that act of Esther uh, allowing that and Mordecai participating in that, but it's the whole idea with a Gentile. It's a Gentile king. What is a Jewess doing with a Gentile king? And so we have lots of content issues there. Now, how many of you have read the story of Tobit? Tobit? Tobit is a story <laughs> of a man named Tobit who had a son named Tobias. And, um, they, and also there's a woman, a Jewish woman, and this is also written in the ex- period of the exile. Um, and uh, Tobias, this woman has seven husbands who all die on their wedding night. And so she is labeled as either a murderess who is strangling her husband at night, but the, the text tells us that a demon was in love with her and was killing these men as soon as they approached her on the wedding night. So it wasn't her fault, but a demon was in love with her. And so Tobit's son heads over and to get something else, a bunch of silver that Tobit had left with someone in the same town, he comes up and meets someone who is Raphael, who is an archangel. Yeah, and so that's, that's an archangel's name, and it's in there, um, and the archangel doesn't reveal himself as an archangel. In fact, he misrepresents himself and says, I am a near, near relative of yours. And he gives the lineage and the names. And so Raphael essentially lies to Tobit, to, and Tobit's son, I should say, Tobias. And so Tobias says, well, come along with me. And Tobit approves that. And uh, to travel together, because it's not very safe, they arrive there, and um, on the way there, they miraculously catch this fish that jumps out, almost eats Tobias, and instead they eat the fish, but Raphael says, you better keep these three organs, one of them, or is it two of them, two of them, two of these organs chase away demons, and one of them heals blind people. Well, um, Tobit himself had become blind because he had slept or stared or meditated under a tree, and a bird basically excreted into his eyes, and he went blind. Okay? That's what it says, okay? And you're already realizing why it's not in your scriptures, right? You're starting to piece it together, okay? Uh, Why we don't call it the word of the Lord. And so, uh, and he goes, and of course, because Tobias is told about this woman, they fall in love, and he uses the organs of this fish to, to to wear off, wear off. Thank you. Ward off the evil, the demon, comes back, has the silver, and is able to heal his father with the other organ, and all of everything is wonderful. And so that's the story of Tobit, which you don't have in your Bible. It's in the Greek Orthodox Bible. It's in the Catholic Bible. 
and it was listed as apocryphal. Now, I want to tell you something. The Tobit is not in the Septuagint. It was actually uh, written later. And so is the Wisdom of Sirach. In fact, the Wisdom of Sirach is another one of those books, and it's like the Proverbs, a lot of Proverbs, but we have the full name of the man, and we already know his history. His son um, was the one who really moved in the Jewish community to try to get it added to the the list of, of scriptures. And in fact, in the Talmud, it is referred to several times, uh, quite a few times, actually, in a very positive light as something worth talking about. And, and he talks about um, all the same things that Proverbs does, largely. He was an instructor. He had a school uh, for men and uh, young men, and his son then uh, tried to promote this. And so his full name is, uh, boy, his full name. It's the only book of the Bible that has the guy's full name. And it's Jesus Bar something, Bar Syriac. So um, that's his full name. And it never took, and it never took. It wasn't part of the Septuagint. It wasn't accepted by the Hebrews largely, although it was mentioned in the Talmud several times. But his son endeavored to translate it to Greek. And in its Greek form among the Hellenist Jews, it exploded in popularity. Why? Well, most of the wisdom portions of the what we would call the Old Testament had not yet fully been available in Greek. And so this is really one of the first wisdom categories that was available in Greek, but it was outside the Septuagint. But it is in the Orthodox and in the Catholic Bibles. And if you read through it, you'll say a lot of this sounds just like Proverbs, because it sounds just like Proverbs. It is. Uh, some of it's almost verbatim. And so it talks about wisdom and the fear of the Lord and get away from those wayward women and don't look. I mean, it gets a little more specific, um, you know, that don't look at this kind of woman, don't look at this, don't look at that, don't look at that. And, you know, and it has all this advice for the young men in his school. And so we know that. Bell and the Dragon, what book of the Bible is that attached to? Disney. <laughs> These are actually two separate stories. Yeah. The book of Daniel. This is at the end of the book of Daniel. Um, and these are two stories. Bel was a false god, an idol, and the dragon was a serpent that was being worshipped as well. And these are two accounts. And uh, why don't we have them in our Bible is because of, again, the language that we see there. So we come into this, and we have one particular thing that we point out, and that Daniel (laughs) laughs at the king repeatedly. Over and over, multiple times, in both the story of Bell and the story of the dragon, which are one story, really. It's just a continuation, two events, with the same king and the same uh, group of people, one, he uh, is able to show that Bell is a false prophet, and he does this by using flour. And so um, the king says, I put the sacrifice of food in there every day, and every morning I come back, and it's gone, and the building is sealed up. So this is a real God. It's a living God. He's eating all this food every single night. He eats all this food. And that's the story of Bell. And Daniel comes in, and it says, he laughs at the king. He just laughs at him and says, okay, let's do it tonight. And this time, Daniel has them spread, I'm pretty sure it's flour, all over the floor. And then he, as the last person, just he and the king are left in there. After all, they make all the servants leave. Him and the king are in the room. And he spreads flour all over the floor and backs out, closes the door. Guard is put in. And he and the king wait. And come morning... They open the door that's been bolted and guarded and everything is secure. And the king says, look, Daniel, the food is gone. Just as I said, no one has come in, no one's gone out. And Daniel says, get a torch. And they get the torch, they open it. He says, don't step in there. And he goes like this, says, look at all the footprints. And they all go to a hatch in the floor under the idol where all the priests come up and their families, they need all the food over the night. 
Okay? That's the story of Bel. The story of the dragon is something similar. And, and uh, again, this is a serpent. And, and by killing the serpent, um, it's like, well, it's not a god because it just died. And it makes everyone kind of upset. But in the midst of that story again, Daniel's laughing at the king. And so are they real stories? Possibly, but the nature of them brings out the question of do they belong because in our text, do they belong there? And, and so um, is that the Septuagint? Yes, I believe it is. Um, but again, we look at that, and the Septuagint wasn't just written to say these are the only scriptures. They were just written of what was available in the day. And so there's also stories of Susanna at the beginning of Daniel that seems to have some credibility, how Daniel kind of established his wisdom in the land there um, in dealing with a Jewess that was falsely accused. And, um, and so we have uh, this um, thing. Now, you say, well, Jeremiah's on the list? Yes, Jeremiah's on the list. Not just because I'm preaching it Sunday morning. Um, it is perhaps the most hotly debated book historically of its presence and how much of it should be there in your Bibles. And the reason is because the Septuagint and the Masoretic don't agree. They do agree on content. They don't agree on anything else. And so if you take your Septuagint, um, there are, and this is what, um, remember I said Origen had a hexapla, and one of his statements was, remember that in Genesis 1, there was an added phrase that God saw was good and it wasn't referring to something living, um, that it really um, was only about the, I think it was the, the dry ground coming forth or something like that, that the first time that the Septuagint said it was good, but it wasn't referring to anything living. And, all the, and the Jews contended that the only thing that God referred to as it was good was all living things that he created. And that was a non-living facet, and that was their complaint. So that was one of their complaints. The other complaint was Jeremiah. Because what the Septuagint did is it totally mixed up the chapters. The, and they weren't chapters back then, but they were accounts. And so if you read through Jeremiah, the first 20, 30 chapters is okay. And then all of a sudden, it's all intermixed differently. But the content is still there. But we find that many of this, now we have another book called the book of Baruch. Uh, Baruch, Baruch. Um, that it was supposed to be written by the secretary of Jeremiah. Um, and then we have the Lamentations of Jeremiah. And then we have the Epistle of Jeremiah all in there. And so we have four different writings of Jeremiah. We include Jeremiah Lamentations. We do not include Baruch. And we do not include the Epistle of Jeremiah. It's only one chapter long, a letter written. Um, and so in the book of Jeremiah, there's been a lot of contention and the Jews have a lot of complaint against the Septuagint over this book to the point that they almost didn't include it in the Masoretic. And they finally decided, yes, we'll include it, um, but we really challenge it and, uh, it's, and have a lot of questions about it. And so um, people ask me, are you just for the Septuagint and against the Masoretic? In this case, uh, the evidence is that because of the Jewish complaint, even before the time of Christ, about this part of the Septuagint, the likelihood is, is that the Masoretic is correct. And the Septuagint did error to the original Hebrew that was still available, and that's why all the Jews complained about them switching the order of the sermons and the prayers and things like that. They just picked up a whole section and dropped it somewhere else because they wanted to arrange it in a different order than what it was originally given to us in the Hebrew. And so when we look at those complaints uh, by the Jewish community, again, before the time of Christ particularly, uh, and we have them recorded for us and in letters and things like that, we, we start to see that maybe the Septuagint um, isn't the best Jeremiah that's available, but if you pick up the Orthodox Bible, it'll be very comparable. You just be out of sorts every now and then. Um, but the content is still there. But Jeremiah is still a very hotly discussed one in this text. So, so we, we see the content here, and we say, well, I understand. This is, these are the questions. But you can, just from me telling you the story of Tobit, you think, well, I, I don't think that's... And Bell and the Dragon, again, some of the issues there. Um, it, it, and I, I like to call this 
historical fiction that is tied into mystery writing. And the Susanna is the same way. You know, the way Daniel solves Susanna is by separating the false witnesses and having them, asking them questions separate from each other, and they come back with different answers, and that's how Daniel's able to prove that they are conspiring together against Susanna. And so a lot of mystery writing, mystery techniques of police work in here for Dan, on Daniel's behalf. And uh, so we, we don't include those, and we can say, well, is it wrong to read? Is it, it no? It, it any different than it's wrong for you to read Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys? I'm not going to say can't read Hardy Boys because it's fiction. Um, re, you can read these, but don't derive your theology from them or your practice. But certainly read them. They're a good read sometimes. They're kind of interesting. But some of the things will just make you smile and say, "Why is this in my Bible?" <laughs> but Remember that there was no defined Bible when the Septuagint was put together. And so it was just a series of writings of the ancient fathers of Israel. Well, some of those were inspired and some weren't. And this is part of the process we're going to talk about a lot more next week. Okay? Any questions you have for this is a real quick overlay of a lot of books, overview, but I wanted to just give you a taste, a flavor of some of the issues when we come up to canonicity. Does it belong in the Bible? Any, any questions? So, the key is, when you meditate on the Lord's word, don't do it under a tree infested with birds. Okay? You might need an organ from a fish to resolve that. Okay, and so just, you know. Yeah. Set traps. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word. And we thank you for its reliability. And Lord, we recognize its power. And we do thank you not only for your scriptures, but for these other writings that we see that throughout history, men have been enthralled by the characters of your scriptures and their lives and incorporated them into their own stories. And, and uh, Lord, we just uh, thank you for the breadth of other literature um, but, Lord, we trust in your word, but uh, we thank you also for the modern writers that give us allegories and stories and even tie them into characters from your scriptures and, we, and the benefit that can be made for us in the realm, whether it be of entertainment or, or just uh, the, uh, a different way of applying truths. And, Lord, we uh, thank you for the, all of that. And we pray that we might be discerning, certainly, but we uh, do thank you for this fullness that you have given to your word and its reach into the writings of men that we see very prevalent in our days uh, and throughout history. And we again rejoice in these truths to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.